0: Welcome to episode eight of the Desires podcast on uh, virtue this week. And this week we have no guest, just me and Potter Edmund. Why don't you start by introducing the music we just heard?
1: Okay, this was uh, by Cristofano Malvezzi, and it's um, from the from the first intermedio to La Pellegrina. The La Pellegrina is a, a play that was performed at the wedding of Ferdinando de' Medici and Christine of Lorraine um, in 1589. And the intermedii are these musical uh, interludes between the different acts of the play. And this is the beginning of the first one, um, which is about the, the music of the spheres.
0: And and what was the connection here for you with, with Virtue and uh, the music of the Spheres? Anyone who's gone to TAC, of course, is always thinking about the music of the Spheres. It's never far from our
1: minds, but what's the particular connection? <laughs> yeah, so the music of the Spheres is, of course, for those of you who didn't go to TAC or <laughs> haven't read Dante or uh, any of these things. Kepler. Um, <laughs> Kepler, whatever. Uh, the music of the spheres is the music that is made by the heavenly spheres, which I thought of as these giant, translucent spheres in which the heavenly bodies uh, are fixed and which rotate around the Earth. Of course, <laughs> and uh, they have the the proportions between the dis of the distances between the spheres are all musical proportions. That the proportions of different notes in a scale of music. Um, and so the ancients and early moderns like Kepler uh, saw them as, as making a kind of music in grinding against each other, the various spheres. And the the connection to virtue is, of course, that on the Platonic view, uh, which continues to be influential throughout Western history, there's a, a kind of uh, a beauty that you find in looking at celestial things at the, the heavens and listening to the celestial music that will then be reflected in the beauty of the soul, which is uh, human virtue. And in fact, in this um, intermedio by Malvezzi, what ends up happening is uh, first a personification of, of, harmony shows up on the stage and then um, the various planets each of which carries an attribute of one of the virtues. So you end up getting all the virtues on stage. That's wonderful. And I mean, there is something like a lot of
0: the ancients thought of uh, virtue in the soul as being a sort of uh, musical tuning. I I think Pythagoras, supposedly anyway, uh, explicitly held that view. And while it's not true in and of itself, there's a certain truth there that there is a, a proportion the music itself, you know, to play the right note, you have to hit the mean between too sharp and too flat. So, with that, with that introduction, let's uh, let's begin talking about virtue. What is virtue? What's the uh, what does the
1: word mean? Well, um, it's interesting if you look at virtue in various languages. Virtue in English, virtus, comes, of course, from virtus in Latin. In Greek, you have the word arete. Um in German, the word for virtue is tugend, which would have its its equivalent in uh the old English word doughty or doughty um all these words they have originally to do with uh, martial virtue, especially with courage, that is with effectiveness in it's work. not very woke, it's all very
0: manliness
1: based <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, virtus is. Comes from "vir," of course, man, um, and "arete." Uh, there are different theories of, for the etymology of "arete." "Arete," I guess, is is the more correct pronunciation. <laughs> we, um,
0: don't,
1: we don't worry about things like that here. <laughs> yeah, we don't worry about pronunciation. "Arete." Many people say it comes from "aristos," meaning the best, or is at least um, etymologically related to "aristos" through some common root. Um, but it seems to me the most probable opinion is that it comes from Ares, the name of Ares, the name of the, the god of war.
0: Okay. Um so English doesn't get it directly. Unlike German, uh we we uh we mixed in a lot of French over our Anglo-Saxon origins. Uh and I assume that's where we get uh, virtue from. So we have all these Latinate words. Uh the sense of virtue then is more like excellence rather than, or, or the sense that Aristotle would have, would have meant by arete is more like excellence than you might think of virtue as kind of being uh, uh, sort of priggish uh, uh, uh,
1: fastidiousness maybe. Yeah. So it means, it means originally excellence in war right. particularly. Um, but then you see already in Homer, that's, being that is extended. So virtue in, in sort of the full sense for Homer is the virtue of the great heroes, Achilles, um, and so on. Their virtue is, is their, their courage and their strength and swiftness in battle and so on, that which makes them effective in war. But already in Homer, you get an extension of arete to mean the quality that makes a thing effective in its role, whatever that role is. So you have the virtue of horses is that they're, they're swift and so on. Um, you have the virtue of, of women that they're able to uh, rule their households well and, and weave cloth and uh, you know, rule the slaves and so on. Um, the, the virtues of Penelope. Um, and you eventually you'll get even the virtues of slaves and children and, and all these things. Um, there's a wonderful sort of list of virtue that Mino gives uh, at the beginning of the dialogue, the Mino, which is a very Homeric account of virtue. He says, well, it's, you know, Socrates asks him what virtue is. And uh, he asks Socrates, of course, can virtue be taught? And Socrates says, I don't even know what it is. And Mino says, know, yeah, it's easy to know what virtue is. It's, you know, there's the virtue of a man. Uh, there's the virtue of a woman, the virtue of a slave, the virtue of a child and so on. And this is a, a, basically a, the Homerica kind of virtue you have. Virtue is the quality that enables you to perform the role, to perform your role um, in uh, what I guess we would now call society well.
0: You're right. And even in English, if you think of sort of old-fashioned English, virtue can sometimes have this connotation. Uh, there's, there's, you know, old English books about, uh, you know, the the herbs had lost their virtue, meaning they'd lost their their flavor or even medicinal power. You know, the tincture still had its virtue despite its age or whatever, and that's more right. of that sense of of uh, almost power of its of its uh, proper activity.
1: Exactly, yeah, power, effectiveness.
0: Right. So, where do we uh, uh, is presumably. Aristotle doesn't just take what Mino says and, and end there. What does Aristotle do if we if we turn to the Ethics? What's his sort of general definition of virtue?
1: Well, um, what Aristotle does is he he, as it were, takes all those examples that Mino would give and tries to find what's common in all of them. And a key um, a key term that he introduces, which um, He takes, I think, actually from the Republic, from book two of the Republic of Plato, although he doesn't, of course, uh, give any credit to Plato when he's talking about it. Uh, He usually only says when he's disagreeing with Plato. He he mentions Plato when he's disagreeing with him, exactly. But uh, the the term there is um, a thing's own work or its own activity. It's argon. Um, which in, in the English translations is often rendered as function, a thing's proper act or a thing's own act. That is, um, that activity that a thing, that this kind of thing alone can do, um, that is, which it and no other thing can do, or which it at least can do better than other things. So Aristotle brings up the example of the flute player for uh, there, what is the, the act of the flute player? It's to play the flute. Right. And um, only flute players can play the flute. Um, or if you look at the act of the flute, it's to produce a certain sound, which only this instrument can produce. Or if you look at the act of a, a knife, it's act is to cut. You can cut with a spoon as well, but a knife can cut better than, than other implements. So if you look at the activities of the the occupations of man, flute playing, shoemaking, cooking, stuff like this, you see that in each case, these these occupations have some proper act. Um, And in the same way with the tools of man with knives and corkscrews and spoons and so on, and with the organs of the body with eyes and ears, what can the eye do? What's its proper act? It's to see. Then that's something that only the eye can do. And so then um, Aristotle will define virtue in general, not human virtue specifically, but virtue taken generally, as that quality in virtue of which a thing can do its own act well. So the quality in virtue of which a knife can cut well would be sharpness. That would be the, the virtue of the knife. Right. There's a beautiful example in the rhetoric um, where he says that the the virtue of money is, uh, is a large quantity <laughs> because <laughs> the proper act of money is to buy things and what enables money to buy uh, things well is uh, there being a lot of it. So <laughs> having a lot of money is not human virtue, but it is the virtue of money.
0: So then is
1: it... Uh is virtue disconnected from
0: the good then? Can you have virtues, um, since since we, we take it to be something's proper act, or, or at least, A, one of its proper acts, if maybe it has multiple things that only it can do, or only it can do super well. Uh, you would have things like mosquitoes. Is there virtue causing itching and uh, misery in others? Uh, but wh- I guess what I'm asking uh, for your thoughts yeah. on is, does he tie virtue
1: to the good? Uh, right. And if so, how? Well, I think he does tie it to the good, but the way he does that is through a general and kind of vague account of the good. That is, he won't, he doesn't tie it directly to um, the platonic form of the good in itself. But it's starting with the, the ve- sort of the vague initial account of the good that you get when you examine your experience, the good is what all things desire. And, um, that means that the good is what they aim at. That is, it's the end. It's the final cause. And then looking at the proper activities of things, um, Aristotle will say, well, the end of each thing, uh, is its proper activity. So, uh, what's the proper activity of a knife? It's to cut. And why do we have knives? What's the good of knives? What's their end? It's cutting. Um, the, the proper act of a corkscrew is, is uh, pulling corks out of bottles. And what's the good of, of corkscrews? Well, it's pulling corks out of bottles. And um, you know what's, what's the proper act of a cook? It's to cook. And, and why do we have cooks? What's the good of there being cooks? Well, it's to cook. It's to cook us food. Right. And the same with all these things. So you'll see that the tying virtue to the proper act of a thing ties it to the end uh, right. and purpose of that thing, which is what's good for that thing. So
0: with man, then Aristotle makes this, uh, and this is a, a point that has been controversial for, for some time. Aristotle and Aquinas will too. I think Aquinas is a little easier to follow here, but sticking with Aristotle for a moment, he talks about both, uh, the moral virtues and the intellectual virtues. So, so what is the virtue for man? Because it seems like if we talk about what does man do particularly well, or what can only man do? Well, the Aristotelian answer is going to be, well, he's the rational animal, so reason. So it seems like we would just locate virtue simply in reason. So, you know, your philosopher who knew a lot of things, Bertrand Russell would be virtuous in a sense, well, or maybe he would be if he was a better philosopher. Uh, but he was also a famous cad. He didn't have what we think of as
1: virtues. Uh, and uh, sorry, space out. Who, who is who is the cad? Bertrand Russell. Oh, Bertrand Russell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. He's a bit of lad. Laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I would deny that he had even the intellectual virtue. But uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, you know, he was. Uh, for the sake of argument, <laughs> right? He was good at mani- manipulating.
0: He had the intellectual virtue of manipulating mathematical symbols,
1: which uh, is <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, a kind of art. art at least, with the art is a, Is Yeah. A
0: so we virtue. can. That, so that's a sort of virtue, uh, but we don't think of we don't think of intellectual virtue as virtue. When you, if you ask like a child who's 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 virtuous, who's who's particularly good. They would point to, you know, uh, probably a normal child would point to like a, a, a pious old lady rather than some brilliant scientist. Right.
1: Yeah. And that, I mean, SL raises that issue in actually in book one of The Ethics when he's talking about what the final uh, end of human life is. Right. Um, because he
0: does, he brings in, he brings in uh, uh, virtue and function into the discussion early, but his first question is, what is happy? What is it that men seek? And he answers that as happiness.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, and then what is happiness? And then you'll, you'll get into this whole thing of uh, the proper active man. And it turns out that the happiness will be doing the proper active man with human virtue. But then the puzzle is that it seems like the active man is uh, the active reason but as you say, commonly when we say someone is virtuous, we don't in the first instance mean that he has um, understanding and science and wisdom. Although Aristotle says, we also praise men because of these virtues. Right. But usually what we mean first is that he has moral virtue. And what Aristotle then does is he says, well, the, the act of man is um, that is the, the the activity that the the argon of man, what man can do better than other um, animals,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, is the act of, of reason itself, and also what uh, obeys reason, right? And what obeys reason ends up being appetite, or what, uh, or those powers of the soul that strive for the good and. As you say, St. Thomas's account here is, in a way, completes Aristotle. That uh, is, he thinks of himself as clarifying what Aristotle says, but it's not. It's not entirely clear whether he's clarifying what's already in Aristotle or whether he's developing, um, as is often the case. Anyway, uh, what St. Thomas will argue is that the reason why the in the way the the um, the virtues the qualities that enable us to strive for the good well, or that in virtue of which someone is called virtuous, simply speaking, is because it is these powers of the soul, the powers of the soul that strive for the good, that bring us in the right relation to our end. So we can have have intellectual virtue. That is, we can have the quality that enables us to use reason well to understand the first principles of reasoning and to um, draw the correct conclusions from those principles and to reason from them then to an understanding of, of the whole of reality and the first causes of all things. We could have such a perfection of the soul without uh, being in the right relation to those things we understand insofar as they are our end. For example, I you could have a teacher who has intellectual virtue, at least of uh, some kind, say a great geometer, who understands um, the the principles of mathematical philosophy, and is able to draw the conclusions with with ease and certitude, that is, there's a kind of intellectual excellence virtue there. Um, But because he uh, is an unjust man, he's lacking in moral virtue the moral virtue of justice, he won't be in the right relation to that truth, which he knows. And so instead of communicating that truth to his students, he uses his knowledge of the truth to lead them into error. Um, and that, right. that such a person we would call a bad, uh, vicious person, not a virtuous person, because even though there's, the, in a way, the highest faculty of his soul, reason itself has attained a certain degree of uh, virtue, he is not in the right relation to the truths that he knows because he's not um, he's, he's not enjoying them as a common good and and communicating them to others, which would be the part of justice.
0: Right, and and to forestall an objection that that could be raised at this point, we are speaking about virtue, at least at the moment, uh, uh, about natural virtue rather than supernatural virtue, uh, where if you the intellectual virtue is per, uh, perfected by faith and by the other uh, supernatural virtues perfecting the various natural virtues. Uh, but returning to the point about, natural, uh, about virtue and, and specifically about the natural virtue that we're talking about here. Uh, when you have someone who, who has this, and this is sort of why I was thinking of uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, who has this intellectual excellence... What is it, humanly speaking, that he's lacking? Because just to push the objection a little further, if we say that he's vicious because he's not serving the common good and all these things, uh, is it just because his appetites are disordered or is it because they're ordered to the wrong end?
1: Well, I mean, in a way that's the same thing. For the appetites to be disordered means that they they are ordered to the wrong end or to the right end in in the wrong proportion to other ends.
0: I was thinking of someone like uh, uh, you read of, of, of military commanders uh, uh, who have great uh, aesthetic qualities to their lives, sort of, but mm-hmm. are devoted to the wrong things. In other words, versus a man who's more dissipated and weak and you know, I'm, uh, might be intellectually very brilliant, but can't resist women, wine, and song or something like that. Or is a glutton, or something like that,
1: right? So, I mean, there's there the disorders that you have. There's there has to be a hierarchical ranking of of goods in human life, if human life is going to make any sense um, right. and not be absurd and vain. As again, to go back to uh, book one of the ethics, then there has to be. The, it can't be that you have more than one final end, and that means that the various goods that uh, we pursue by nature that are naturally desirable to us have to have a certain order among them. Um, And if you pursue uh, certain goods that are lower in that order as though they were the final good, as though they were the highest, then you have only the appearance of virtue. That is, you have a a certain quality which enables you to do a certain kind of human action well. Um, but it's not really human virtue because it's not it's not subordinated to the the full good of your humanity so if I'm a, a great military commander in in some sense that is I have the ability to to master my fear to be courageous um, to to understand the principles of uh, of military action and strategy and so on and to be effective in Attaining the goal that is sought in military action—the immediate goal being victory—you you have a certain effectiveness in attaining vir- in vic- victory, and that is a certain a certain virtue. But um, if I make that the highest end, or if I subordinate it to some other good which is not, in fact, the highest end, and make some other good that's not the highest end be the highest end, such as fame or honor, um, or uh, wealth or whatever it is, revenge um, whatever uh, it is that I take to be the highest end, then i 'm not really a virtue a virtuous human being. You can say in a sense he 's a virtuous general, but he 's not a virtuous human right, being
0: right right right, right because there's the, the the Machiavellian sense of the good would overwhelm the true sense of the good if you thought he was someone like you know i don't know charles the twelfth was was truly virtuous although there is much, uh, uh, admirable about a man like Charles the 12th. I mean, he's very ascetic and very disciplined and, uh, uh, pursued the end that he chose wholeheartedly. Uh, so what's the, what's the next move in the discussion of virtue? We've, we've now said that it's both intellectual and moral, uh, Maybe we can refine sort of the definition of virtue.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you were bringing in there a moment ago the the supernatural virtues, which I don't want to, to move to yet. But um, one thing to see is that in a way, the, the ultimate attainment of the human good is with the highest faculty, with the faculty of reason. Right. Uh, but to attain to that good as one's good, it's necessary to move towards it uh, with um, the, the powers of the soul that are ordered to desiring, to desire what we could call the heart. Right. Um, what the scholastics call appetite, which is, makes a lot of sense in Latin, but in English, appetite has kind of a, um, a degraded uh, <laughs> connotation. Um, <laughs> so I prefer to talk about the heart. You need this formation of the heart to come into the right relation to what is the highest good, which even if you look at on a natural level, the contemplation of the, the first cause and, and final end of the universe, the contemplation of God, um, which is kind of the pinnacle of not just kind of, which is absolutely speaking the pinnacle of human life. That is, an, that is the, the highest attainment of human good, is to be united uh, to God. Through looking at him, through contemplation, which even even natural contemplation, which will always be indirect, and of course far more supernatural contemplation, which will be a direct vision uh, of the of the essence of God, the infinite beauty and glory and and goodness of the divine being, to be directly united to that in the highest faculty of one's soul—that is happiness itself—and um, so in a way that is. That is far greater than any moral virtue, but moral virtue is is necessary in order to attain that you can't attain so this is why when I was talking about someone abusing intellectual virtue, I brought up the example of a a geometer rather than a metaphysician, even though in a way it's true even of a metaphysician because it's a, such an indirect contemplation of God right that uh, uh, someone can be in an, in a sense a good metaphysician even if he's a bad person but the more that you the the closer you come to you know really beholding the source of all goodness in god himself the less it's possible um if you have a bad heart that is if you are in the bad in a bad relationship i
0: would say god. it's it's unlikely and indeed i might even argue it's it's almost impossible to be a bad uh, or, at least, a, a, a vicious or incontinent man and a good metaphysician for two reasons. Aristotle points out with, with incontinent men uh, that they are, in a way, like drunken drunks, uh, and that the right. passions are going to be overwhelming them and, in fact, overthrowing their reason. And it's going to be very hard to be contemplative when your reason is being continually. Uh, clouded over by your unbridled passions. Uh,
1: Absolutely. And
0: for the vicious man, it's, I would say, even worse because he, the incontinent man is in a way better than the vicious man because he knows the universal. The vicious man has, uh, through bad actions and through bad reasoning and and through sin, ultimately, uh, gotten the wrong end. And he's pursuing something that he should not pursue. He's pursuing a lower good in, instead of a higher good. And so I, I'm not sure if it would be impossible, but it's very unlikely that you would be a good metaphysician while doing such a thing uh, because we're men. We're not, we're not angels. I mean, Lucifer in a sense has knows everything he needs to know. Uh, but for us, Uh, we are animals. And if our animal side, if our, if our passions are disordered, if we're pursuing, uh, you know, whether it's honor or power or uh, uh, bodily desires and really think that that's our true end, well, then we've, we've most likely made a mistake of reason as well as of, of will, even if it didn't start out as a mistake of reason, you see, like for Abelard, uh, uh, he he's, yeah. he's, his arguments are so sophistical, and I don't think it's uh, disconnected uh, from the fact that his life
1: was so uh, vicious. Yeah, at least it- I mean, there's there's even a kind of, of of recognition of that in in the history of my calamities, yeah. where Abelard says that he noticed that um, when that it became harder for him to. To think about the highest truths he was he, what he was giving lectures the whole time when he then uh, <laughs> decided to, to start uh, seducing Eloise and he says in the history of my Calamities, and I think it's kind of a remarkable admission that uh, it became harder for him to to contemplate the truth after he he started uh, following his carnal lusts
0: right I also um, think of someone like I mean I, I really do think of someone like like Bertrand Russell who obviously an intelligent man. But as, as you said, you were, you were unwilling to admit that he was even a good philosopher. I think he was good in the sense that he's obviously intelligent and he obviously had ability. But I think he, he, his vicious character, from what I can tell from what the biographers tell us, his vicious character uh, really prevented him from being able to really achieve true wisdom.
1: Yeah, there's a terrible, a terrible superficiality yeah. <laughs> In him, despite his brilliant intelligence um, okay but let's let's look at now more closely at uh maybe um, the what what these faculties of of the soul are so you've been saying man is not only intellectual he's also a a uh, an animal so putting the ball in in your court what does uh <laughs> Joel what does Aristotle mean by uh the the part of the soul that is subject to and obeys right reason the appetitive so part of the soul
0: because we're not animals uh, they, they, so here's my here's my answer and and, and you correct me please uh, because we're not brute animals because we do have reason we have a part of the soul that uh, can we have reason, and then we have a part of the soul that participates in reason. And then, if you go further down, there's parts that don't. So, I don't reason about whether or not my metabolism keeps my body warm. Right. If something happens wrong there, no one, no one blames me. If if there's a disorder, it's a merely material disorder uh, that, or, or at least it's it's certainly nothing to do with my reason. Uh, likewise, I don't, you know, my digestion, my food. I choose what food to eat, but presuming I'm doing that moderately and in accordance with reason, then I digest it and I don't think about that. Uh, and I don't have any control over it. It's just something my body does. But then moving up in the soul, and I, I really think, I wonder, Aristotle is not ex- explicitly following Plato. And indeed, there's a lot of difference between him and Plato here. But I do wonder. Uh, whether or not he isn't in some way thinking about the beautiful picture in the Republic. Uh, I think it's in the Republic where he talks about the soul having the different parts. You have the many headed monster and then you have the lion and then you have
1: reason. Well, you have also in the, uh, in the Phaedrus, isn't it where you've got the image of the charioteer? Yes. The charioteer. We have the two horses, the two moss and epitemia that is, Spiritedness and and this right. Uh, right. and then you've got the charioteer who's reasoned. Right,
0: and I think this. I think this. I think it's the Stoics who end up uh, being most explicit about the sort of four virtues that Aquinas will explore much more explicitly. But that's to get ahead of ourselves. Uh, so, because we are. Men, because we are animals and because we live in the material world and are indeed material beings, we have to uh, we have this part of our soul which can obey reason, and that is things like our both our passion and also our, our uh, what you might call our irascible side. It's sometimes called the uh, uh, or spirited, I think is the word in the Republic. Uh, right. And these aren't reason itself, but they will follow reason, or at least they can be trained to follow reason, even if they don't do so necessarily as easily as one might like. And these are things like, you can see it with eating, with gluttony, uh, whether or not you follow. So the sort of general action theory here is that everybody is choosing a good. And uh, when you're choosing the good of food, that's a necessary good. It's a good you have to choose, unless you're given some sort of uh, incredible, uh, supernatural virtue of the way St. Anthony supposedly was, where you subsist solely on uh, receiving communion.
1: Uh, but for naturally- speaking. Yeah, where Nicholas uh, of Flew, the, the Swiss saint, it's actually um, quite demonstrable in his case that, uh, that, that, that was the case for him. I mean, this is a tangent, <laughs> but I mean, if you we've <laughs> actually examined examined the relics of uh, Bruder Klaus von der Flü. and he uh, they can demonstrate that he didn't um, take in any nourishment after the the age when he uh, when he became a hermit, and he lived for I uh, can't remember now how long. It's in like thirty or forty years without eating anything.
0: But in any event, that's a that's a, <laughs> that's a supernatural <laughs> gift that, that would. Right. It would be wrong for most of us to even attempt that sort of thing. Uh so you have to eat. But then your appetite presents you as food, is this good? Or, or maybe you have a sweet tooth or whatever. And it can become immoderate so that you're actually hurting yourself. So you have this weird thing where where people can say, you know, what's good for me? And you think, oh, eating this entire tub of ice cream. And then after you do it, you're like, oh, what a mistake that was. Why did I do it? That wasn't good for me. When you have small children, this is continually brought to your mind because they're always trying to do things and occasionally they even do it and then they, you know, they regret the decision almost immediately. <laughs> Why did you let me do that?
1: <laughs>
0: I didn't. You stuck yeah. off. <laughs> uh maybe it's just my wicked children.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean the interesting thing about these appetites, they're they're striving uh, either in the, in the case of, of um, epitomia of, of concupiscence, it's a striving for what's sens- sensibly pleasurable. Or in the case of, of tumos, of the irascible appetite, it's a striving against, um, against uh, obstacles and dangers and so on. But in, in both cases, what's interesting is that they arise from um, the knowledge that we have through the senses. And we can see something analogous to them in the animals. The dog smells you know uh, meat and then it um, it's the saliva starts flowing and he, he goes and tries to get it. Um, he strives for the meat and so on, or he senses um, a, a rival dog and he bristles with anger and so on. But in the dog, those appetites um, they have a, a necessity the passions that arise out of those appetites that is, arise necessarily. When the dog senses a certain sensible good, then he necessarily desires it whereas in in human life, a kind of wonderful thing is the way in which although in untrained humans like uh, your children Joel <laughs> 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 there, there's uh, there seems to be very little uh, rational control of, of appetite yeah, I mean that's and one passion. of the reasons we
0: speak of the age of reason because you know I have a three year old and it's just you can't you know she does not have control over her appetites, or or her the, what control she has is extremely imperfect, and so that's sort of the job of the parent. And this is maybe getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but the job of the parent is to inculcate, ultimately, virtue and and habits in uh, uh, the parents' children, such that reason can control the appetites, and the appetites aren't. Uh, so that the, the the lion is on the side of the man, and can overcome the many-headed beast, or the uh, the charioteer is in control of the chariot.
1: Yeah, and the the wonderful thing about that control that the charioteer has over the horses is that it's not just that reason can resist appetite when it understands that the you know the object that the appetite is striving after isn't. Um, Reasonable, but it's that reason really can guide the appetite. So that uh, if you look at people who really are virtuous, you you see that they don't even desire what's not reasonable. Right. That is, that the passions aren't even aroused in an unreasonable way. The passion only arises um, when there's a reasonable object, and so that that's like those are like very well trained horses that. Um, that only, uh, you know, only run in the direction in which they're guided Although, by the church. I will say here, uh, those of us,
0: so Our, Our Lady, it's clear, never desired anything except for the good. Uh, but those of us with, with born in the state of original sin, it may not be the case that humanly speaking, it's possible to utterly subjugate one's passions to reason or utterly order them because uh, I remember thinking about this. I remember Father Buckley, who's this, this, this great priest, uh, who's a chaplain at our at our undergraduate at our college. Um, he was giving this sermon and he was talking about some nun who was a saint and just had lived this wonderful life. And he said, and she was afflicted with the sexual temptation of, of sexual desire on her deathbed of all places. <laughs> <laughs> well sure and, and I, also but, think with, I mean that, I think with some cases like Saint Anthony famously had uh, uh, I think there it was an occasion to demonstrate his the the extent of his virtue because the temptations he were subject to were such that no simply human power should have been able to resist them, and he did obviously reject them utterly.
1: Well, sure. But I mean, you can see, there's a more and less yeah, here in right. virtue. I mean, you can see, you can see people who have, I, you know, I know many people who have uh, much more moral virtue than I have myself. And you and can, can sort of wonder about the the harmony in the soul that you see in them, um, which gives them, uh, which, which makes them, and, which gives them a, really a happy life, and and also the 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 crown of a happy life, as it were, which is um, the joy that flows out of doing uh, doing human life well. And the its, peace. Something, it's something that's delightful and pleasurable.
0: You, you see that it's it, it, these people. I think of this myself, uh, as I you know, for people who are truly virtue, there's a peace that they have because because they. Uh, They're not kicking against themselves. They don't have to, occasionally when I've done the right thing and it's been a struggle, I realize the reason this is a struggle is because I am not as well ordered as I ought to be and because I'm having to force myself, you know, painfully to do the right thing. And if you look at someone like, uh, uh, St. Thomas, uh, his, uh, one of the reasons he was able to contemplate so well, speaking again of the uh, uh, connection between the intellectual and the moral virtues, is because uh, after he uh, uh, drove the, the uh, prostitute out of his room and branded the cross on the wall, uh, he was given you know the great grace of, of purity such that he was never troubled by temptation in that uh, manner again. Uh, so he was truly virtuous in that regard and didn't have even, as far as I know, much temptation there because, yeah, and this allowed him to contemplate so well and to really say, you know, the, the pure of heart will see God.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, and you can see, I think you can have kind of a preview of what that's like in areas where you yourself aren't tempted. So for example, um, <laughs> my father gives this example uh, of when I was a baby, and he was standing on the uh, a uh, balcony. We were living in in Rome at the time, and we in an apartment building, standing up on a balcony high above the street. And it occurred to him that he could throw me uh, down to my death. I was perfectly helpless in his hands. But then he he said to himself, "This is, you know, it, it would I, actually, it's impossible. That is." Theoretically, it would be possible because he was a strong man and I was a weak baby. He could have killed me easily, but morally, it was impossible because he had no temptation to do it. Right. There was no, the, uh, there was no, there was no passion in him that was contrary to reason. There, he, he loved his son and didn't want to destroy his son. And <laughs> <laughs> that kind of necessity is something that I think all of us uh, have experienced, at least in some area. And the more that you grow in virtue, the more. That kind of necessity grows in one's life, right. and it's the the experience of that necessity is, and this is uh, um, kind of a, a paradox of the the different ways in which we speak of freedom, that that's a that's a necessity, that kind of moral necessity of not doing what's um, contrary to the good, is an experience of freedom. That is, he doesn't. My father is standing on the balcony, holding his son in his arms. It wasn't an experience of unfreedom that it was impossible for him to murder me. No, no. <laughs> it's an experience of, of um, you know, of a, a, a harmony in the soul and and in a very uh, obviously at a very low level um, because it doesn't take much virtue not to want to kill innocent children. But oh. uh, the more you grow in virtue, the more that uh, that kind of that kind of necessity, which is a, a kind of moral freedom, um, grows in your life.
0: Right, and I mean these days, it's that's I mean don't take that for granted. Uh, But I mean, my point about the the saints was just that the the sort of desert father point of in this life will be tempted to the last breath. You see the peace of virtue in the blessed primarily. And here, some people achieve it and and you all achieve it to a certain level if you become virtuous. Uh, But there is a sense in which because of the tribulations and trials of our life, it's not going to be uh, uh, smooth sailing, even, even for saints, maybe particularly for saints. Uh, so on that point, though, I, I think this is a good, a good turning to sort of the, the next question. We, we've talked about getting our passions under control. How, do we, how does one do that? So Aristotle has a great answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Aristotle has kind of a frustrating answer, which is to become virtuous, you have to do virtuous actions, um, yeah. <laughs> which you can't do unless you're already virtuous. It's kind of a circular answer, but it's the same. He says in the arts, um, how do you become a good piano player? You become a good piano player by playing the piano. Well, and um, it's not enough to just, uh, to play at random, uh, on the piano, you'll you'll never make any progress um, unless you submit yourself to the discipline of of uh, practicing pr- playing the correct notes um, right. until until you no longer have to force yourself until you do it um, just with ease until you have become the master of the piano and can play any tune that comes into your head and it will be the same with uh, the virtues so you have. Um, you have these different powers of the soul. We've talked about uh, concupiscence, uh, epitomia, and uh, on the one hand, that is the desiring part of the soul and tumult, spiritedness on the other side, uh, the irascible appetite that uh, strives against obstacles and dangers. And from those appetites, you, a great many passions arise in the soul. And so you'll have many, many uh, moral virtues, a a whole list of them. But you have certain primary moral virtues, which uh, in the tradition are called cardinal virtues, from cardos, meaning hinge, because the other virtues hinge on them. And those are the virtues, those are kind of the the architectonic virtues that are each concerned with one of the main powers of the soul, um, from which various other either passions, in the case of the sensible appetites, um, or, uh, other kinds of acts in the case of, uh, spiritual powers of the soul arise. So you'll have, um, to take, to begin with, with the desiring part of the soul, which in a way, in a way, this is the part of the soul that is most known to us. That is in one way, it's most known to us because our knowledge of the world begins with sensation, with seeing, And hearing and smelling and tasting and touching, Um, and if you observe, you know, little children uh, crawling around on the ground exploring the world, um, they they come to an object and they sense it with all their senses. They look at it and they taste it and bite it and uh, shake it to (laughs) hear what it sounds like and so on. So this is the, the the our knowledge of the world begins with sensation. So in a way. And will, all this has got to be qualified in lots of ways, which I'll leave out. But um, leaving aside all these qualifications, in a sense, because uh, knowledge begins with sensation, sensation is the knowledge that's closest to us. And this means that the knowledge of sensible good is closest to us. Right. The first sensible good is pleasure, sensual, sensual pleasure, what gives pleasure to uh, the sense powers. Um, is in a way the good that's most known and most immediate to us. And so the desiring part of the soul concupiscence or epitomia, is that part of the soul that desires what's essentially pleasurable. That is, um, what tastes good, um, what feels good, um, what sounds good. But especially especially it has to do with uh, the pleasures of touch. Because um, in a way, these are the most... The most elemental, touch is is the least distinct sense, but it's in a way the most basic. It's the most Um, certain. Yeah, the most certain, the most basic, the most necessary to life. And the pleasures of touch, nature has connected them with goods that are very necessary for our existence, that is with nourishment and with reproduction. Nourishment, which is necessary for the preservation of a single being and reproduction, which is necessary for the preservation of a whole kind of being. So um, the principal objects of the concupiscence are the pleasures of nourishment, that is, of food and drink, and the pleasures of sexual intercourse through which we preserve our species.
0: So before we get too far into the cardinal virtues, should we say a little bit more about uh, uh, what what Aristotle calls habit? He calls virtue a habit very famously. and you, you talked about that a bit when we said virtue, how do you get virtuous well by, by doing virtuous things? Uh, and second, should we talk about the, the fact that virtue is a mean? and then sort of uh, end with a quick discussion of the cardinal virtues?
1: Sure. Um, and I think we can see it very well um, just looking at the first of the cardinal virtues which has to do with, with concupiscence, that is, it's the virtue. W- which perfects the desiring part of the soul. Right. The virtue, Aristotle calls it sofrosune. Right. Um, the scholastics the call it temperancia, temperance. Um, and it's the virtue that perfects that, that is, that brings our desire for the pleasures of, of touch primarily and of taste, um, that is, the pleasures connected with nourishment and sexual intercourse principally in accord with reason. And what does it mean to be in accord with reason for those um, pleasures? Well, uh, in the case of food, it means not eating too much and not eating too little. And for most people, the, the temptation is to eat too much, but we know there are also people who uh, are tempted to eat too little. And virtue, um, the virtue of temperance will enable you to, to only desire the amount of food that is uh, reasonable, that is really conducive to your health and well-being, the preservation of your substance. And the way in which you're going to – so it's, that's what – in the first place, what's meant by saying the virtue is a mean. That is that the good in, um, in these kinds of things, in these limited uh, goods, the good is destroyed by excess or, or by defect. So food is something good and necessary for life. Um, but it becomes destructive if you have too much of it or too little of it. So temperance is concerned with the mean with respect to food, to take the most uh, the easiest case. Um, meaning that temperance is concerned with eating the right amount, not too much and not too little. And that's, it's, temperance is not concerned with the mean in the sense that it's concerned with being mediocre. Right. That is, there's nothing mediocre about not being a glutton or an anorexic. Um, <laughs> right, it's what enables you to to uh, eat in a truly human way to be excellent. It's the in
0: mean in the same way um, that uh, if that. you play a
1: violin, playing
0: the right note is a mean, as in you're not playing too sharp and you're not playing too flat. It's not. Uh, it's not better if you get sharper and sharper and sharper.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, and if you look, in fact, if you look at um, the. Pythagorean theory of music, the what we would call the, the, the tonic note, the home note, as it were, um, in a in a scale or in a melody, even they call the mese, the mean. Yeah. Um, it's the note that everything uh, comes back to and, and leads to. But um, so how do you, how do you attain that virtue of eating the mean, not uh, less or more? Well, you do it by habituating yourself. That is, by continually, at first, being forcing yourself or being forced by your parents. Um, if you have a good upbringing, right. which Aristotle says is very important for attaining moral <laughs> virtue, if you're continually forced to, uh, you know, to eat the right amount, the amount that's good for you, um, then you will begin to take pleasure in, in the mean, because the mean is actually better for you than anything than excess or defect. And so it will, it will in the long run be more pleasurable. So the more you habituate yourself to choosing the mean and, uh, to acting on that choice, the more, in fact, you'll take delight in doing what is right. And the more that will become like a second nature. And this to is you. the
0: way, this um, seems like the way in which that our, our, uh, not talking about prudence, but our, uh, Appetitive virtues actually participate in reason is because they're very trainable. So if you get used to, if if you get used to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, smoking is something that's extremely hard. It's extremely addictive. So it's in other words, the habit is formed very quickly of wanting cigarettes, of desiring cigarettes. Likewise with food. If you get used to eating. Huge amounts of su- sweets every day. It's going to be very difficult to stop, even if it makes you feel bad when you're doing them, even if it's bad for you. And so, in this way, your appetites participate and reason by, if you do it well, uh, uh, desiring the right amount at the right time in the right way, uh, and of the right sorts too—neither uh, too sweet nor too salty, etc. And, uh, if you do it badly, then they'll fall away from reason. In this way they are something that's subject to reason and, uh, participates in reason in a sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, uh, let's, let's end by, I mean, there's so many things we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about, uh, the, the, the theories opposed to virtue theories such as the emotivists or the, uh, utilitarians or Kantians, uh, if, oh, right. if only we'd had Elliot with us, I'm sure we would have said more about those. Uh, we didn't get to the supernatural virtues, which I was hoping to do, but let's let's end by just discussing why is it that there are four cardinal virtues, and uh, let's say a few, a little bit at least, about uh, justice, fortitude, and prudence.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think in in hopefully in future episodes we will be able to explore these things yes. more. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the a way of looking at the, the cardinal virtues is again to return, and maybe here we can bring in one objection against the view of virtue that we've been propounding. Uh, the objection would be a kind of a tragic way of looking at human life, which would see the different goods that um, human beings desire as being not hierarchically ordered. Um, that is, as being ultimately opposed to each other. And so there's, there's a, a one kind of tragic way of looking at human life that you see in certain poets, especially, um, but also in some kind of anti philosophers. Um, <laughs> for example, uh, uh, what's his name? The negative and positive freedom guy. Uh, oh, whatever. Uh, uh, Isaiah Berlin. Yeah, I say in Berlin, (laughs) he has kind of this tragic idea of human life, that you've got these incompatible goods. And so um, you're pulled, human life is essentially to be pulled in contrary directions by the attractions of contrary goods. And um, ultimately, it's tragic because whatever choice you make, you'll regret uh, having lost the other choice that you didn't make. And uh, so it's inevitable that you'll make some choice. but you're, in the end, everyone is going to be miserable. Um, and he puts it much in a much uh, nicer sounding way than that, but eventually it comes down to that. Um, but uh, I think Aristotle makes a very good case for human life um, being hierarchically structured because there would be no, because it seems like we experience making reasonable choices. And that would be impossible if human life was tragic in the Isaiah Berlin sense. That is, um, there would be no reasonable criterion for doing one thing rather than another if they were multiple final ends. They were all at the same level. There would be no criterion for saying, I will do this rather than doing that. And that's contrary to our experience where we deliberate about things and it doesn't seem to us that we just make a random choice as to say, well, you know, I'm going to go with the Reds rather than the Blues, just for the heck of it. Um, but it seems that that there is really that when we deliberate, we're really thinking about what is it that will um, be more conducive to the fulfillment of my life, to my happiness. Right. Um, and then the that that hierarchical view of the goods of human life gives you a way of looking at. The, the the kind of the the structure of um the human soul and seeing how different powers of the soul can work together towards attaining um the end of your life so we've already talked about reason and we've talked about the the parts of the soul that um are subject to reason and in in plato um Plato only talks about those three parts of the soul. It seems to me at least, I mean, there are different ways of reading Plato, obviously, but in the Republic, it seems like the three, those are the only three, the only three parts of the soul that are really relevant to the discussion of virtue in the Republic are um, reason, uh, spiritedness, anger, uh, the irascible appetite and epitimia, desiring, the desiring part of the soul. So reason, Irascible appetite, concupiscible appetite, to use uh, more modern terms. Those are the three parts of the soul. But he still, in the Republic, you still come to four principal virtues. Yes. Because um, the, which the whole are, book is about justice. The whole book is about justice. And justice ends up being the, the, the virtue of harmonizing those three the, three, the virtues of the other parts of the soul. So um, you'll have temperance, courage, and prudence. Perfecting those three parts of the soul, uh, and then justice will be the harmony of temper of uh, temperance, uh, courage, and uh, prudence, um, which is in one way that's is this is I think a very helpful way of looking at. It, but I'll it I don't think it's quite right uh, for reasons that I'll say in one second. But for first to just tarry with Plato for a moment. The what's good about that way of looking at it is that. Uh, it shows you. Well, first of all, you have you see a reason why the the three the three virtues, temperance, courage, and uh, prudence, are kind of the main virtues, uh, because they each perfect one part of the soul that has to do with attaining the good. Temperance has to do with the part of the soul that desires uh, beauty, especially and in Plato, um, courage with uh, moderating the, the part of the soul that strives against what's opposed to the good, and then prudence that has to do with the understanding, the understanding of what your end is. Um, and then what unifies the whole um, project of human life, as it were, there is the virtue that brings all of those together, which is justice, which uh, brings all those virtues into the right um, relation uh, to each other. And this is very fertile then for the analogy that Plato wants to make there between um, the soul and the city um, in which justice is, is kind of the, the form of the city, the common good of the city that. Uh, Harmonizes all the different excellences right. within the city. But what this what this conception is missing is, or at least it's missing an explicit uh, advertence to the will, um, which is in in later understanding is going to be a desire that arises from rational knowledge. So just as concupiscence is a knowledge, is a, a desire that arises from the sensation of, of the sensible good, from the sensation of pleasure, will is uh, a kind of a striving, uh, an appetite, to use the scholastic term again, uh, that arises from the intellectual knowledge of the good from the rational knowledge of the good. And in a way, the the reason why this can be passed over by Plato without explicitly adverting to it is because if you're thinking about your own proper good, the will doesn't need any virtue to desire that. Right. It doesn't need to be perfected by habit. If I understand what's good for me, then um, I automatically will it. I don't need to have a, a habit to, to want what's good for and me. And Socrates, in fact, this is so easy to make, that, that Socrates
0: in, in other dialogues will act as if uh, knowledge is all, in other words, that all wrongdoing is just a mistake of knowledge, which is maybe accidentally true, but isn't, isn't uh, virtue and knowledge aren't uh, uh, the
1: same thing. Yeah, it would be true if your own, if your own proper good, that is, uh, you know, we get into now, to go back to an episode that we did a, a whole long time ago about the common good, this goes back to this whole discussion of different levels of one's own good, one's proper good. Right. If the good that was most immediately mine, as it were, that is the good of myself as an individual, were the highest good, absolutely speaking. Then Socrates would be right that um, the only possible way of uh, falling into evil would be through ignorance um, because the the moment that I understand the good that it's most close to me, I cannot but will it and indeed everybody um, does want the good or they want the good. Exactly Everyone
0: desires that. the good it's what you desire you you don't where choice comes in is. Uh, how to go about achieving that. And then knowledge comes in in, in, in both the choice of, of means and in trying to determine what exactly the content of the good is.
1: So, but what uh, later thinkers, and let's just go to St. Thomas because he synthesizes them um, with this mutual clarity. The insight that they'll come to is that justice um, is a virtue of the will that the will needs in order to love or to desire a good, to desire the good for others. Right. In the, first, in the first sense, to desire one's own good as a more universal good. That is, to desire one's own good as a part of a greater whole. To desire the good of the whole city. It's why justice um, is
0: so important. Because as Aristotle says, even in the, in the ethics, in a sense, justice is just all of virtue as related uh, ad extra. Exactly. and. Of course, there's a more specific sort of justice, which is legal justice and all that sort of thing. But in a a broader sense, justice is just a virtue that isn't simply about your own perfection, because obviously uh, the virtue of temperance is all about yourself, making sure your soul, you're not uh, uh, desiring out of uh, proportion.
1: Right. So it's, it's desiring first for yourself in the sense of yourself as a part of a greater whole, but then it's also desiring the good for others who have some relation to you. And that, I mean, to go back to the episode we did with, with Pedro about, uh, about right there, you see why the, the definition that the Roman jurists that Ulpian and so on give of justice is so fitting. They define justice as the constant will to give each uh, other his yus, his right—that um, is, the will to give the other what is good, his good, the good that is due to him.
0: Right, right. Yeah, no, a lot more could be said there. A lot more could be said there.
1: Uh, yeah. that's- let's move to prudence because yes. prudence is is the prudence is the queen. She is. <sighs> She is the best. She <laughs> prudence is the greatest. Yeah, the it, it amuses me. I, I've I've heard people say
0: uh, sometimes, you know, oh well, uh, you just have prudential objections to that, as if uh, as if that were of no moment.
1: <laughs> like oh, that's yeah, Oh, as if as if that didn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate in a way that prudence in in modern languages it tends to have this kind of um, pusillanimous ring to it, you know, like prudence is is like, is so in some way opposed to courage prudence is, you know, counting the costs and, um, <laughs> you know, not stretching your neck out or whatever, but uh, the really what prudence is, and maybe we can translate it as practical wisdom because that's what, what it is. Prudence is what orders all the other virtues. Um, prudence is, In terms of its subject, prudence is not a moral virtue. It's an intellectual virtue. That is, in terms of the power that it perfects. The power that prudence perfects is reason. Um, So prudence considered in terms of the power of the soul in which we have to attain it, prudence is an intellectual virtue. But in terms of the activity that uh, prudence enables us to do, well, it is a moral virtue because what prudence enables us to do is to understand what's really good for us right. and to understand what are the means that we need to take in order to achieve what's really good for us and so prudence is is in a way the form of all the virtues because if you don't understand what's really good for you then you're not really courageous um you're not really temperate you're not really just if you know we had that example of the evil general there's a sense in which he has courage but it's not true courage because it's not a human virtue it's not if it's not formed by prudence, not formed by knowledge of the prudence.
0: right, I I, I kind of wanted uh, in a previous episode we talked about the good ruler needs to be virtuous and competent, and and I was sort of kicking myself after the episode for not pushing back there because uh, if the good virtue if the good ruler has regnative virtue, the regnative prudence that means he is competent. If if by competent you just mean right. uh technical ability divorced from virtue well then it's it's no good regnative prudence is the ability to choose well politically and it's quite a rare virtue very very few people have it in any uh uh you know meaningful quantity uh and the other thing i want to say about virtue is or about prudence is this that just as the first principles of reason in the theoretical order Aren't things that we contemplate, or aren't things that we 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 discern about, or or choose to think or not think? You don't you don't you know them almost connaturally. As soon as you start abstracting at all, these first principles are known, whether they're known clearly or not. In the same way, the first principles of say the natural law, to you know do good and avoid evil. These aren't things that people uh, people might think they reject them, but these aren't, in fact, things that prudence discerns about. These are givens, as it were, that everyone holds.
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So the the acts of prudence have to do with most of all with uh, with the means right. of attaining the good. That is, it has prudence ha- does have to do with with the right understanding. It, that is, prudence doesn't have to deliberate about whether we want to be happy or not, whether we want to do good things or bad things. So it's not a matter of deliberation. You, ought, you automatically want to be happy. But prudence um, is concerned with understanding what happiness is. Although, I mean, this is in a way also uh, on another level, that's part of the intellectual virtue of science, um, the science of ethics. But, <laughs> but um, working, I mean, prudence in a way can, concretizes that science but the the acts that the prudence will then most of all perfect have to do with the means that you choose um, with respect to the end so we, we often say prudence has basically three acts um, which are counsel choice and command counsel that is thinking about the, the different options right possible ways of of pursuing your end that you have given your, your concrete circumstances in your life and so on. And then choice is um, ju- making or judgment. It better to say judgment because choice is the way we use choice is, as an act of the will. But here we're talking about an act of practical reason, not an act of the will. So let's call it, let's call it judgment, counsel. And then judgment, judgment is judging which of these uh, options is, is the best, the most conducive to your happiness, and uh, then command is um, shows why why we call uh, why prudence is called the queen of the virtues. Uh, command is when um, reason then commands the other powers of the soul to to follow right. that judgment. Right. In other
0: words, why, and this is, again, this is the connection between uh, uh, the rational nature and the uh, uh, sort of animal material side of man. This is where the rational nature actually orders and chooses uh, what should be done by the composite man.
1: Yeah, and you can see the different, People who have prudence um, can, have, can have it more in one of those acts than in another. Right. So, for example, um, thinking of my parents when they're deliberating about what to do, my mother is very strong in counsel. That is, she's very good at seeing all the different factors that go into making up a decision. She can see the pros and cons. If they're deliberating about, you know, some decision that affects the whole family, say, whether to to move to a different city or whatever. Um, my mother can see very clearly, she has the the perfection of that act of prudence counsel to a very high degree. And uh also to a high degree, also the 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 perfection of judgment in a way. Um whereas the strength, my father's strength seems to me, uh is principally in command. That is, he's able to to make up his mind about it. My mother can see all the options. right? And he is maybe not, wouldn't on his own be able to to see them as well. But when he's he's discussed it with my mother, then he can uh, very easily and well make the decision.
0: Right. And that is, it's odd, but those are separate things. It might seem paradoxical at first, but you see indecisive people and I mean, sometimes it almost seems like if you see all the options too well, <laughs> it might almost lead to indecision. You, you might get paralyzed between the choices, like the donkey between the bales of hay.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it might seem that way. But again, um, actually, it's not that way, because in reality, our lives are... Do finally make sense, right. and so the there is there is going to be a, mo- a reasonable thing to do, right? Although whatever whatever your circumstances, although
0: again with prudence, because the uh, we're talking about particulars, it's impossible to have certainty unless you have you know uh, uh, some sort of divine assistance or the gift of the Holy Spirit. You never know for sure uh, because the the the. the uh, the natural law, to, to use the natural law here, the natural law is certain at its most universal level. And even while you're still mm-hmm. on the universal level, as you go down towards the secondary precepts, it starts getting really hard to know. And you see people making more mistakes and cultures making more mistakes. There's the famous example of, uh, of uh, the Germanic peoples not understanding that theft is wrong. Uh, when it's of strangers
1: <laughs> right i mean practical practical reason is it's distinguished from from speculative reason because it's not concerned primarily with universal truths um, it's it's concerned with what is to be done and that is that is a, a that depends on um, the disposition of your soul and um, the the particular circumstances of your life but the right decision for is going to be the one that, you know, is, conduces to your, um, that is, that's conformed to right um, desire. Not that's right. So my point beyond to bringing up how yeah.
0: foolish the German tribes were and how foolish uh, Germanic peoples are to not understand that theft is universally wrong is it's difficult even on the universal levels as you, as you descend into more particulars but once you get to particular actions, you can't expect scientific certainty, and in fact, it's impossible, humanly speaking, because the contingent particulars have too many, too many uh, unknowns and too many factors. Uh, sadly, I think we've run way over time, <laughs> so we're going to have to wind up <laughs> yeah. here with so much left unsaid. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for this wonderful, enlightening conversation. And please, if you listened this far, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, and if you're able, uh, help support us on Patreon.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Joel. It's great to talk Likewise. to you. It's too bad Elliot can't make it again, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> maybe in future too, perhaps.